0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain
0: To talk about people who sincerely believe that living in certain ways, constructing your family or your own identity in certain ways is sinful. It does me no good to treat those people like hateful bigots. It does me so much more good to say, tell me more about how you got there and let me tell you more about how I got here. My bodily integrity is not in danger in this conversation. And so, I need to be having this conversation. If someone is to be at risk about this topic, let it be me. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Fancy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of (laughs) nuance.
1: This week, we're going to catch up on the news in the first segment, celebrating Pride Month in the main segment with our own personal reflections on how our ideas about the LGBTQ community have changed over the course of our lives. And then we will close out the show reflecting on Rachel Held Evans' life and legacy after attending her memorial this weekend. But before we get started, we here at Pansu Politics, and by we, I mean all of us, we have major celebrating to do because we reached a goal we plucked it out of the air. I'm just gonna be real with y'all. We plucked it out of the air. We're like, oh, let's just pick a number. It'll be a number to dream for. And y'all blew it out of the water. We're going over and above our thousand
0: patron goal at this point. It's unbelievable to me. Unbelievable which means we get to do our five-city mini-tour. It means that we have just unlimited possibilities ahead as we go into a weekend of discernment about the future of Pantsy Politics. There are so many doors open to us because of this financial support that were previously closed. And I really can't talk too much about it or I'll get choked up. I just thank you all so very much for allowing us to continue doing this work because to be truthful, I quit my job a little bit over a year ago now and anticipated that that would be something like a sabbatical because I didn't know how long we could sustain this. And you guys are giving me hope that we can really sustain this. And I am just beyond grateful. Not only sustain it, but grow and thrive and really do the work that we feel called to do. So thank you.
1: Yeah, it's totally surreal. It's just surreal. Like the swipe up, listen, I was excited, but then I immediately got the swipe up and it became like a thing in my life. This is so surreal. And it's like, we don't really even know the impact of this it's like hard to even imagine what this sort of freedom and opportunity can mean for us in the show and you know it's it's like you guys can see stuff we can't that's really that's a gift that's a gift like that you see the possibility where sometimes we can't and I just I don't even know what to say it's really powerful At
0: the end of the show today, you're going to hear from another one of our patrons, Michael, who's been with us for a long time and who I think of as just a dear friend now. And I can't wait for you to hear his voice. We want to continue to hear more of your voices as things roll forward, because the community aspect of what we do is everything. And so, again, just thank you so much. Let's check in on 2020, Sarah. We have another candidate in the race. Welcome, Mark Charles. An independent candidate.
1: I watched his launch video. Did you watch his launch video? I did indeed. I thought it was really powerful. He has this whole kind of thesis that people talk about the Constitution all the time and the Constitution is doing exactly what it was designed to do, which was to maintain the power of white landowning men. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what, Mark Charles? You got a real good point there, friend. You got a real good point. So his thing is, we need to make we the people mean all the people because it never really has. And I think that, Is a really powerful message. I was skeptical beginning to watch the video. And by the end, I was like, this is a good point.
0: He's got lots of good points here. So Mark Charles is an indigenous person. He is talking a lot about how we don't have community memories, that all of us in America are operating from different origin stories of what America is. And that, to me... Was the most compelling aspect of hearing from him and thinking about what it could mean if the media takes him seriously, really gives him an opportunity to run for president as a serious candidate. This could be a moment that transforms our understanding of our own country in a way that I think would be very healing and positive.
1: We have reached out to Mark Charles, so hopefully we'll have a chance to have him on the show and talk to him in more detail. And I think we're both really intrigued to see where his candidacy goes.
0: I've talked about this in a few different spots, but I have really tried this year to focus on a better understanding of indigenous people and indigenous culture. It is nothing short of mind bending to change my perspective in that way and to think about how many aspects of the way that I just situate myself in life have this origin in land ownership. And when you take away the idea of land ownership and view things in such a relational way, it just, it's really, really radical. And I love it. And it's enriching my life in so many positive ways and making me confront a lot of ugliness. And so I just I welcome Mark Charles to this conversation.
1: There was lots of additional conversation around the 2020 Democratic primary this weekend. We had a big meeting in California with the California Democratic Party. Basically, everybody was there but Joe Biden. We also had Kirsten Gillibrand on Fox News and a really kind of scary situation with Kamala Harris. So we're going to talk about those right now. Did you watch Kirsten Gillibrand on Fox News, Beth?
0: I will be honest and tell you that I only watched excerpts. I have not watched the entire town hall.
1: Well, the two big moments that are getting a lot of play, the first is a woman asked her about late-term abortion, and she took that moment to say, well, we can talk about that, but the infant side that Fox News clamored on about before the State of the Union for six hours is not a thing, and they should take responsibility for that. And then Chris Wallace, who I usually like, had the audacity to tell her she was not being polite. Because Fox News was hosting her. And when he used that word, I about came out my skin. Polite? Are you kidding me? Do you think in that moment he knew what a ridiculous word that was to say to a female candidate? Or not?
0: I imagine that Chris Wallace has watched that a couple times and wished he had handled it differently. Here's what I think is really positive about it, though. I think that tension that existed was really great. I think for the Fox News viewer, it was probably important for Chris Wallace to be like, wait a second, why are you beating up on our network? We invited you here. And I think that for everyone, especially the Fox News viewer, it was really important to see Gillibrand saying, it's not my intention to be rude, but I want to state the facts. And here they are. And the way that she didn't back down, but she also did not escalate in any way. I thought it said a lot about her character and her personal style that she was able to be really aggressive in that moment without seeming like she was being showboaty. You know what I mean? You could just tell that she was just speaking about what's important to her from a place of it being important to her, not really trying to create a moment the way it's become a moment.
1: Well, and to give nuance to Chris Wallace— I actually am not convinced she wasn't trying to create a mo- moment. I'm sure Chris Wallace read the political article I read before she did this town hall, which was, why has Gillibrand basically failed to launch, considering she was such a high-profile senator? And the reporter has this really interesting moment, we'll link to the article in the show notes, where she says something off the record, and he basically says, well, she gives me a cleaned-up version, which is, why are the reporters always asking me about my mail? colleagues that are running for president, I don't think they get asked about their female colleagues all the time. But he was like, if she'd given me (laughs) that insight and the way she gave it to me off the record, it would have been a viral moment in this article. And she keeps playing it safe. And that's why she's not launching, because in order to rise above the fray in this particular primary, you need some of those viral moments. And so I have to believe that not only did Chris Wallace read that and say, was trying to stop this sort of, you're not going to get your viral moment here. I mean, I think that she can't, and I don't think she was, let me say, I don't think she was calculating. I think she was relaxing into who I believe she really is. And that is, in large part, angry. And I like it when she shows that. And I like it when she sort of reveals that sort of emotion that a lot of times she's real careful about. I think she would be going, I think the article is right and the reporter's insight is correct, which is if she would relax into her real feelings about this moment, about being a woman running in this moment, she'd be doing better than she is. And so I was happy to see her do that, not only in that moment, but in the town hall when she said, I'd like more women at the table. And he said, well, you don't want men at the table? And she was like, you're you're already there. You know that, right? (laughs) And so I hope that she does more of that because I think she's really good in those moments. Like you said, not because she's necessarily... Escalating it, but because it's very authentic and that you got
0: to have that right now. You just do. Well, it's so funny because I'm listening to you thinking, wow, I view this so differently. Because part of what I respect about her so much is that she is not crossing this emotional threshold that would escalate these moments. You know what I mean? I feel like that authenticity is part of her being in control and saying things that are really true in really stark terms. Let me just contrast it with someone I know that she's close to. I feel like Cory Booker is always trying to create a moment. I like him. I respect him. But I feel like there's this threshold that he crosses where he's really trying hard to pull everybody in and have one of those kind of soaring Obama kind of moments. And what I like about Gillibrand is that I think she doesn't do that. She shows up as herself. And who she is is perfect To have this discussion. She's a perfect messenger on gender issues, I think. And so I was excited about the clips that I saw of this town hall. I'm looking forward to going back and watching the rest of it because I do like her. And that political article made me so furious because I'm tired of media like lamenting the state of things and then saying, I could have gotten a better quote though, y'all. I could have gotten a more incendiary quote. And then you really would have been sharing this article. Like we have to. All be part of the solution here if we want it to be different.
1: I just think it's hard. It I, is hard. I don't unquestionably. I don't know. You look at Elizabeth Warren. Is Elizabeth Warren breaking ahead of the pack because she really is doing the work and she has the plans? She also had some viral moments. She also had a moment in the airport with a guy on the bus at this terrible gate everybody hates. And she went to v- West Virginia and sort of created these own moments. And it's like, for better or for worse, in a crowded pack like this, You got to walk and chew gum at the same time. You got to create the viral moments for the Twitterverse that's not reflective of the voting population of the Democratic Party and also find a way to appeal to the voting population of the Democratic Party. Like, I'm not saying it's an easy position to be in. It isn't. But it's also going to be the type of political skill that's required to go up against Donald Trump in the general, you are going to have to create those media moments because Lord knows he can and also have a different message than the only thing that's important about being president is being angry or creating these media moments. Like, it's hard. I mean, I think that in the way that any primary is hard and that you're trying to appeal to your base and making sure you can still appeal in the general, this is like that level of difficulty times a million.
0: And you can see the way that Trump defines the debate. I think in the reactions to what happened with Kamala Harris. Because I think the guy who got on stage and grabbed the microphone from her should not have done that, obviously. All the reactions that I've seen have been like so like name-calling And it has drawn out like so much ugliness about him personally. And I think like this is just our new normal now. This is what we do in politics, right? You don't like what somebody does. You go to middle school insults about that person because that's what our president does constantly. Like it just reminds me that this has taken such a toll on who we are as human beings and how we talk about each other. And we are going to have to be very intentional about coming back from that. And I don't see that intentionality at the top of anybody's list. In fact, when you bring it up, they're like, spare me your civility lecture. It's difficult.
1: Well, and it's also hard because, look, I just did it. I busted on his man bun because he represents, again, so much of my leftover frustration, like that attitude, that type of person, that stereotype of the... I mean, I don't know if this particular young man is a Bernie bro, but even the Obama bro from 2007, like I'm carrying all this anger and frustration at that particular type of person inside the Democratic Party. I like all these past traumas from other elections and it's just it bubbles up. You can't help it. You're I think so many of us are still frustrated and angry about how things have gone down in previous elections and we're carrying all that baggage into 2020 and I think what's interesting about what happened at the California convention, where you had everybody present, but Joe Biden, who was campaigning in Ohio, is you saw that sort of, is that what we want? Do we want to go back? Like nobody mentioned him by name, but it was a lot of, is this what you want? Do you, are you ready to just go back and have the same conversations we had in 2016, in 2008? Or do you want to have a different conversation? Do you want the Democratic Party to stand for something new and something exciting because Joe Biden is not new or exciting. He can have lots of positive attributes, but that those two ain't one of them. So I, I don't know. You know, I don't want to read the same Democrats are falling apart. Like, I'm so tired of that. But look, there's a lot of complications here that are going to play out across 24 candidates.
0: I liked how Kamala Harris handled that situation. I just, in general, find her to be in such command of any room that she's in. And I thought this was no different. She seemed totally nonplussed. I did start thinking about how expensive it is to have this many people running for president once again. And I thought about that a lot in terms of just getting your message out and staffing up. But I hadn't thought about it in a security way. And this is a really expensive proposition when you think about how much security needs to start accompanying these folks as they run around the country. And I love the interaction that many of them are having with voters directly, but it does require some protection for them. And lots of people have pointed out it took a long time for anybody who looked like anything close to security to get up on that stage and deal with what fortunately was not a dangerous situation but could have been. There were some photos of her husband that showed that he was really offended by what happened and really concerned about her. And, and I thought that was nice. I think they're a nice couple and that there are lots of positive things about the way their relationship comes across. But man, like that could have gotten scary quickly. I mean, never forget that Robert F. Kennedy
1: was shot while he was campaigning in the Democratic primary. I mean, it's not like this is not something that's happened in our history. where a politician out there way before the generals kicked off was put in harm's way. I it's a different time in some ways.
0: Well, it's a different time in many ways, and gun violence is even more prevalent than it was when Robert F. Kennedy was shot. And so let's talk about the tragedy in Virginia Beach where 12 people lost their lives when a 15-year civil engineer walked into his workplace where he had just put in his two weeks' notice of resignation with a gun that had a silencer on it and and killed former colleagues. So as a
1: person who served on my city commission, this Virginia Beach is also a city manager form of government. And just reading the departments these people served in, being in that environment a lot as a city commissioner, being with the people who serve their city, especially public works and public utilities, they just take a lot of emotional abuse. It's a difficult job. It's so important. And I just, I felt the loss So heavy for Virginia Beach. Just the decades of experience, people who understood the city, who loved the city, who wanted to serve the city, and who were put in harm's way by just doing their
0: job. It's just heartbreaking on so many levels. This one is, I think, so illustrative of how we know this problem is escalating. There are so many narratives about why. Why? And I think that this shows that it's just never one thing. And there are lots of solutions on the table from people who have all different perspectives about guns. And I think all those solutions need to be talked about and worked toward. And also, it's not one thing, you know, so we do have to keep them all on the table. Because if you start walking through what happened here... We don't even understand. It has some classic hallmarks, right? We have somebody who had some military service. We've got to be honest about discussing how many of these people have military service. You have someone who a neighbor says did some catcalling, and we've got to be honest about how domestic violence and street abuse, street harassment are part of people's psyches sometimes in these scenarios, but none of those things are surefire predictors. I don't know. I just think this, this situation shows that we don't quite have our arms around the complexity of how a person who most people described as nice and fine and a decent employee makes his turn and no one sees any warning signs that this turn is coming. Well, and what I don't want to hear is using any of these events
1: as this sort of get out a regulation free card. Well, this particular regulation wouldn't have worked here. So that means we shouldn't do it. Okay, let's not do that. Let's not do that. It's not not applicable. It's not relevant. The idea that a law is only good if it applies 100% of the time would leave us with no laws on the book. So let's all acknowledge that and stop trying to argue that a gun regulation isn't needed because it wouldn't prevent 100% of all gun violence henceforth forever.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, it is going to have to be – we are going to have to work this problem from so many different angles because so many different angles are implicated every time these acts of violence occur. And we just can't know ultimately how to stop this if we don't continue and, – and I don't know that we can ever fully stop it – but if we don't continue to work every single angle. And I think that means – Everybody's got to give a little bit here. Can we make some progress? because this is just we're having the same conversation every time one of these things happens. and it's like every time we we have that battle, we start to see, look, here's another case study and why this battle is just paralyzing us from getting to what's really going on here.
1: Yeah, in order to actually start working on this problem, we're just gonna to have to start.
0: Yes. yes, we just have to start. Starting is essential to any process. And we are refusing to do even that. The president of the United States is in the United Kingdom this week, which is making for some really fun photos, I think. It just makes me so nervous. I'm a nervous wreck when
1: he's around the queen. I'm just going to be honest about that.
0: Oh, tell me why. Because I'm afraid he's going to offend her and make us all look stupid. What would it be like if you just accept that that is definitely going to happen?
1: I mean, I said on the news brief that, look, he called the mayor of London a stone-cold loser, but let's let's acknowledge the stone-cold person in this scenario is the queen. She has been around for a very long time, and I don't really think that she is fragile in any sense of the word. I know she's up for the challenge that is Donald Trump, and I believe in my heart that she will not blame all of us for his behavior. But I just look, I want us to look strong and intelligent and like we have real leadership that's up for the challenge of our current... Global climate, environment,
0: struggle, challenges, time. And it's embarrassing. It just is. It's embarrassing. Yeah, that's not going to happen this time. And the UK is in a state of chaos itself. So, we're going to talk on Friday about five things you need to know about Brexit. There is major upheaval in Britain right now. Theresa May is leaving. She's basically going to get the president through this visit and be out the door. And so we're going to talk about what you need to know about Brexit with the assistance of one of our listeners in the UK, Corey. On Tuesday, we'll talk more about it. So we've got a little policy set coming up for you so we can all get our arms around what is happening here, because the implications of it really are far reaching and global and I think particularly relevant to U.S. politics and policy.
1: Before we dive into the main segment of the show, Beth, who are you complimenting this week? on the other side.
0: I would like to compliment state lawmakers in Connecticut, where the Democrats have a majority, who've worked very hard on a new budget package that involved tons of compromise. Connecticut is thinking hard especially as more and more people move out of Connecticut about It's budget deficits and revenue in the state, and they considered all kinds of ways to raise revenue in the state without an income tax increase, and it was a tough process. But they have come to a new budget that would close projected deficits totaling more than $3 billion over the next two fiscal years, which that's big. A budget that closes projected $3 billion over two years is amazing to me. It would establish the largest budget reserve in state history, a $2 billion cushion against the next recession. And that is good governance right there and good planning. I also liked this quote from Representative Tony Walker from New Haven. She said that this budget begins to reverse damage done to education, healthcare, job training, and social services in Connecticut. She said, we have to make sure we spend more on education than incarceration. Let me just stop right there and say amen. And she said, we have to make sure we spend more on developing jobs in our neighborhoods instead of crying that everyone is moving out of Connecticut. It's important that we recognize we have three and a half million people in this state with a variety of needs. So I read a long and wonky article about this budget process and could really see how difficult it was and how much work and compromise and disappointment came into the process. And I just want to say, I see you doing the work. Good job, Connecticut Democrats.
1: I'm going to compliment Ted Cruz. I know. I I feel like I compliment Ted Cruz a lot.
0: I mean, it's not really a lot. I
1: still like his beard. He and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had a Twitter moment where they both agreed that we need to close the revolving door between members of Congress who go and lobby. Now, I think that sounds great. And I love that they saw that they aligned. And he reached out to her basically and was like, she's wrong about a lot of things, but she's right about this. And she was like, okay, you want to do a bill? I think that's awesome. I love that they are doing that together. I think it's a bigger task than either of them are acknowledging, but let's at least praise them for reaching out. I mean, who thought we'd see those two in a Twitter moment together that results in anything positive? So, yay. Good job, Ted Cruz.
0: Next up, we are going to kick off Pride Month by answering a message from our listener, Cody, about our own personal journeys with LGBTQ issues.
1: dot com slash pantsy.
0: Our longtime listener, Cody, sent us this message, which seemed to us to be a really important question as we celebrate Pride Month in June. Cody writes, I've been catching up on old episodes I let pile up. And in the most recent episode, I listened to both of y'all speak about anti-LGBTQ bills in North Dakota and other states. What struck me was the real, powerful, legitimate compassion And hurt I could hear in both your voice and Sarah's. As someone with a terrible relationship with their mom because I'm, quote, gay married, it really touched me. I was hoping as we go into Pride Month, could you and Sarah share your journey, however simple, that brought you from a Christian upbringing in red territory to having the compassion you do for Americans like me? That's a great question, Cody. And before we get started, let me say this.
1: It would be really easy to paint a beautiful, portrait of our journey to become open-minded individuals and i I like to think that's part of what happened, but the reality is too that the culture changed dramatically from when we were kids to now with our own kids. I would argue one of the most dramatic cultural changes with regards to a particular identity that we've ever seen. I mean we went from gay was unacceptable when I was born in nineteen in nineteen eighty one to but he was basically sort of a Aside culture at best to I'm now 37 all the way through Will and Grace to now where it is, especially at least culturally and sort of media and pop culture, completely acceptable. I think it was a really dramatic arc. And I think my life lines up pretty well with that cultural arc. I don't know how you feel, Beth.
0: I think that's true. And certainly just having discussions about LGBTQ individuals in the population and just the education about that population beyond people who are gay has expanded just exponentially, even in the past 10 years. Right. So I, I agree that I think we've both had some personal shifts, but also those shifts do align with that with that larger arc and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we were able to witness in times in our lives that change.
1: So for me, I grew up in Paducah, obviously, and in a Southern Baptist church where I was taught explicitly that being gay was a sin. It was compared to being an alcoholic. I was told that basically it was a choice that people could help, that they could they could turn away from that sort of sinful instinct the classic religious upbringing and teaching using many verses in the Bible to prove, quote unquote, that being gay was a sin and bad. And so because I was a very religious teenager and very involved in my church youth group, one of my greatest regrets in life is that I spent a lot of time in high school using those verses to argue that being gay was a sin, that being gay was bad. The reason I regret that so strongly is not just because it's awful and offensive, but I have friends who have since come out of the closet, friends from high school and other parts of my life during that time who, you know, thinking about sitting there and the things I said in front of them when they were probably going through their own struggles, living in this very red religious place and being gay It's just, you know, It breaks my heart. I hate to think about the things I said in front of them and the fact that I use the Bible to argue that point. You know, it's something I really, really, really wish I could take back. I try to give myself grace, and these people are not mad at me. They still love me and we're still close friends, but, and I try to remember I was a teenager, but it's still really hard and I'm still angry. Honestly, with the adults who armed me with those Bible verses and who taught me that I should go out and tell my gay friends that they're going to hell and that they're sinful and that this was bad. I'm, I'm mad at those people because I was a teenager, but they were adults. And I think back to that time period in my life, and I'm just sort of heartbroken with how we were all treating each other. And it's something that I very much think about when I talk to my own kids, when I take my own kids to church,
0: and probably will be trying to make amends for the rest of my life. I've shared on the podcast before that my church was not sex-obsessed in any way. So I did not hear much about, I can't remember anything that I heard about being gay or certainly transgender growing up. know, it just wasn't discussed. I think there was an assumption among the adults around me that it was wrong and that it was something that you if you had this instinct, you should try to avoid. But it wasn't explicitly discussed around me. And I certainly never heard a sermon about, like, here are the reasons this is wrong. And I'm grateful for that. And so my feelings about gay relationships were formed mostly through conversations with my friends in high school, many of whom later came out. And so I never really had a personal sense that it was wrong to be gay. I also, though, never had a sense that it was my responsibility to speak out for that community I just had this kind of live and let live feeling. I say you to you a lot, and that's how I always felt about it. And my big regret is that when I was in law school, Kentucky had a constitutional amendment on the ballot about defining marriage as between a man and a woman. And in law school, I got very swept up in conservative legal theory. I read everything that Scalia wrote and thought, This man is brilliant. This makes total sense to me. This is logically coherent. This is where I need to be. And so when that constitutional amendment came up, my thinking about it was more libertarian, like the government shouldn't be in the business of marriage anyway. And so we shouldn't expand that definition because I think government should ultimately get out of this and leave it to faith communities or civil ceremonies or however people want to commit to one another. And so I voted for that constitutional amendment and I have regretted it every single day that I have thought about it since then. Because what it took me some life experience to get is that I'm not here to be a brilliant legal scholar and we don't live in law school hypotheticals. And if the rest of society would let people live and let live, it might be a different analysis, but the fact is, society is not doing that, right? As a society, we inflict pain and violence on our LGBTQ fellow citizens all the time in the form of physical violence, in the form of judgment and avoidance and glances. So what I have learned is, since it is not my calling to be brilliant, it is my calling to be kind and generous, That I have to do better than just saying, you do you, and the government should stay out of it. The government is not going to stay out of marriage. So that differentiation is discriminatory. And that is the evolution of my thinking about this, that it is not good enough for me to just be fine. It is instead important for me to be an ally in a very real sense.
1: So I was already out of the state of Kentucky by the time that amendment came around, but my evolution on gay rights was, was pretty swift once I got to Transylvania University. I, I don't know if I remember, I don't think there was like, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus in some revelatory moment where I thought, oh my God, you're so wrong about this. I think it's exactly what you described. I just, and I think this is, is, this is why the culture transformed so swiftly and why our narratives align with that is because more and more people came out and were willing and gracious enough to talk about their journeys and talk about their experiences and when those are people you love and you're talking with them and you're seeing what they're going through. You know, for me, there just wasn't a lot of room to hold on to religious doctrine that I was rapidly abandoning on a lot of other issues anyway. And so pretty quickly, once I went to college, I realized that that's not how I felt, that the Bible says all kinds of things about divorce and other things, and that the culture moved, and so did our interpretation or our emphasis on certain parts of the Bible. I also honestly kind of gave up on my faith for almost a decade. Um, And I think that the treatment of the gay community was a huge part of it for me. I think I just felt like it was inconsistent with my values at that point in my life to Cross the threshold of a church that was not totally and completely accepting of me as a woman, as a leader of LGBTQ rights, of all kinds of social justice issues that were and still are very reflective of my values. And so in that decade that I stopped attending church, there were lots of conversations and sort of dramatic changes, particularly in the Episcopal Church with the ordination of a gay Priest. Again, as I was tracking, the culture was changing. And I think the other big shift for me, beyond just going to college, moving to DC, working in North Carolina, and just having so many personal relationships with members of the LGBTQ community and seeing the challenges and just empathizing with their journeys, was having children. Because there are a lot of things when you have kids that you don't have control over. And it's awful. It's scary and it's awful. And there's a lot of things I can't control about my sons and what they'll go through in life. The one thing I can control is the level of acceptance they feel for me and their family members. And so when I became a mom and I started again to think about the choices I made for my kids, and I started to re-examine my faith, it was essential for me that I would not attend a church that was not fully and accepting of the LGBT community. It just wasn't... That was my one, probably two things, that and women in leadership. Like, I just... I was not going to put them in a community that would hesitate for a millisecond in accepting them fully and completely if they came out as gay. I just, I couldn't do that. I think that, I think about my boys. I think about their lives. I think about all, I, you know, even Cody's email. The idea that your parent would look at you And say, I don't want you here. You're not a part of our family. I can't accept you. It's just so difficult for me to comprehend. I have, I try so hard to have compassion and empathy and disdain in other people's shoes. But that one is really, really hard for me. Because the only thing I want for my children is to know that I love them unconditionally. That's the, I feel like that's one of the very few things I have control over. Is it just enforced? There's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. There's nothing you could say to make me stop loving you. You are mine and I'm yours. That's it. And so that aspect, that new role, seeing the world through my experience, limited experience at this point as a mother, was sort of, I guess, the, the final piece of the puzzle for me. And where I'm pretty, I feel this sort of fierceness about it. I feel this, these are human beings. I mean, I just... I think about that statistic where the Supreme Court came down with their decision about marriage equality, that the teenage suicide rate among LGBTQ youth dropped. And I just think, why are we yelling from the highest mountaintop every day, twenty four seven? we love you just as you are? It's it's just really, it's hard for me. It's really hard for me. I know everybody's not there. I get that. But that's where I am, at least at this point.
0: That is last piece is why i've really come around on what the law is here to do because for the most part i don't think laws are very effective at changing culture and i don't want people baking cakes out of resentment i mean there are limitations to what laws can do right and and i struggle with what the appropriate use of the law is but it is so clear to me that even though laws have a backlash even though laws make certain people feel attacked, put groups in a defensive posture, the most vulnerable population here is affected in profound ways by laws that express support for this community and by laws that protect this community. And I just recently, again, submitted testimony in Ohio in support of a a statewide protection similar to the Equality Act that we talked about the House of Representatives passing because... Like I said, it's just become obvious to me that it's not enough to be neutral here when our fellow human beings are subjected to such awful treatment for what comes from the most personal and loving place. I, I'm really happy that I haven't had to religiously struggle with this because my understanding of God has just always been that God is love and love is God. And so I have never had any questions in my own mind about whether God loves gay people or whether being gay is a sin. It's just, it has always been clear to me that God creates us and God wouldn't have people sin out of love. You know, it's just, that's always been, sorted out in my mind. But the aspect of what government should do about it has been harder for me. And, and my turn has been in the direction of maybe this is inconsistent with almost everything else I believe about government. And that's okay. I'm a human being and I've been given a brain and an intellect and a soul, which allows me to be inconsistent where it matters. And this matters to me. And I think, Something that Rob Bell talked about on a recent episode about how I won't I'm not going to get it exactly right. But he said that, you know, humanity is being able to look into another person deeply enough to see yourself. And my real emotional attachment to this issue and my heartbreak about it has not really been around looking at gay people and seeing myself in them. It has been in looking at myself and seeing them in me, you know, and understanding that I am connected to everyone else and just thinking, how could we be doing this? How, at this point in our history, after all the ways that we've taken groups of people and subjected them to Horrible judgment and treatment. How could we continue to do that here? And I agree with you that motherhood is certainly a piece of that. I remember holding my daughter when she was very little and thinking, I can't imagine caring who you love. You know, I can't imagine caring what you like to do or how you like to present yourself or how you dress. Like, I can't imagine feeling anything other than what I feel right now about you for the rest of your life. And I think that that changes you. And it spreads beyond your own children, right? Now I look at kids in the mall sometimes and I see something happening with them that feels wrong to me. And I just want to go get them and give them that love. And I hear stories about people whose parents won't come to their weddings because of who they're marrying and think, I'm right here. I'll come. I'll, I'll give you all the hugs. I'll be on the next plane. Like, you tell me what you need. I will be your stand-in mom. Because I do feel that sense of like, let me just mother the world here. And I'm grateful for that, and I want to stay with that. And so I cannot, at this point in my life, argue about religious freedom in the sense of I don't support these couples, so don't make me fill in the blank. I'm not discounting the complexity of some of these situations, and I'm not discounting the sincerity of some people's beliefs. But I don't have room for that because this issue breaks my heart, and I think you're supposed to follow your heartbreak. After I was elected
1: to the Paducah City Commission, it became apparent that we needed to reevaluate our human rights ordinance because of some um, functional problems and process problems within the commission itself. When we did that, you know, for me, it would it was unimaginable that we would address this ordinance without adding LGBTQ people, as a protected class within the ordinance. Just, that's not, that's not something I would be able to do. And so we did. We added age and we added LGBTQ protections within the ordinance itself. And we became, I think, the eighth or ninth city in Kentucky to do so. One thing I learned from that process is that because the culture has become so embracing of LGBTQ people, there's some real confusion about where the law stands. I have often talked to people my age, people who are just as progressive as me, and have said there are no, in the state of Kentucky, there's no state law or federal law that protects gay people from being fired for being gay. There's no state law or federal law that protects gay people from being turned away from housing because they're gay. I think there's that's shocking to a lot of people. I think because of the because the the conversation centered so much on marriage and once marriage equality came, there was an assumption that there was all equality. It's just not true. So that's the first thing I learned. I didn't, you know, grow in my understanding or acceptance of the LGBT community through this process because I was already at like 110 percent. There just wasn't a lot of room for me to go anywhere else. I knew it was the right thing. I think it most likely cost me my reelection, and I don't care. It was the right thing to do. That's what I was going to do. There was no other option available to me. What I did learn through that process, which was emotionally fraught and very difficult, and through the process recently where our new commission... Looked at the law again and added an amendment that was basically the state law because some people don't understand that the state law always applies. It's fine, whatever. What I learned was for people who are opposed to gay marriage, for people who believe that being gay is a sin, they are struggling under the cultural shift. They remember a time when you could believe that being gay was wrong. And that was a perfectly acceptable position to have in our culture. And it is no longer true. You can believe that homosexuality is a sin, but you're going to be judged for it. And they don't like that. I truly believe that that's what's going on right now. I don't think anybody feels well, people might feel persecuted. They might experience what they feel to be persecution, but that persecution is just cultural judgment and you cannot legislate that away. There is no law, there is no Supreme Court decision that's going to change the cultural progress we've made. Now you can restrict people's civil rights and that's something we always have to be on guard and that's something we always have to protect against. But culture always wins. And we're not going back to where it can feel okay to be opposed to being gay or to thinking that that gay marriage is wrong or thinking that gay people can't adopt children. You're not going to erase will and grace forever. Like, it's just not going to happen. It's just not. The culture has moved forward. And I think there's a group of people who feel they don't like the fact that they feel guilty for their religious beliefs, that they feel judged for their religious beliefs. But like I said, no matter what, I mean, you can erase every civil rights gain that the LGBT community has made, but that's not going to change the culture itself. That's not going to change the media environment. Like, that's that ship has sailed, and that is powerful. And, you know, I think that what you see is people who just resent that. They resent it. And I don't really know what to say to them, and I don't really know. I think you're right that, you know, legislation is not the best way to deal with cultural change, but that works both ways. You know what I mean? Like you you can't drag people forward with legislation and
0: you can't pull them back either.
1: We are where we are. And I think that's what we're really struggling with right now.
0: The only thing I want to push back on there is that I think you can pull them back with legislation and that there are people who really want to do that. And I think there are real and present Threats. And this again is why I feel compelled not to be neutral about this issue, but to really be active on it. Because when the Trump administration, for example, bans people from serving in our military, I think we have to be very vigilant about these rights. I agree with you that I don't foresee a day when it's going to be socially embraced to feel that being gay or being any part of the LGBTQ community is wrong. I don't, I don't think we're going back to that. But I do think we have to be careful about being comfortable with the civil rights progress that's been made because I think it can be lost quickly, especially when you have a group of people who so resent where we are culturally. I don't know a lot to say about that either, except to say this. I try not to be judgmental of people who are doing the very best they can navigating cultural change that has happened at different rates in different parts of the country. It does me no good to talk about people who sincerely believe that living in certain ways, constructing your family or your own identity in certain ways is sinful. It does me no good to treat those people like hateful bigots. It does me so much more good to say, tell me more about how you got there and let me tell you more about how I got here. And that is to me the other piece of being an ally who is cisgender And married to a man, right? My bodily integrity is not in danger in this conversation. And so I need to be having this conversation. If someone is to be at risk about this topic, let it be me because I'm not vulnerable here. And so I think those of us who are not part of this community but want to be good allies to this community, I think our work is not to ostracize the people who feel differently. It is to be with those people and have a real, open, loving conversation the best we can on behalf of people who are much more vulnerable in those conversations than we are. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that.
1: the civil rights and the cultural attitude, because I think you're right. I mean, I think you have to be ever vigilant. Absolutely. Those civil rights are never assured. And there's something that we always have to watch out for and protect and fight for because laws can be overturned. But I think there is a part of me that just wants to be honest about what I see and say to the people who are so frustrated and resentful of the cultural change and say, like, we're not We can talk about this. You can hold this opinion. You have to understand the culture is not going back. Lady Gaga will never be erased from our societal consciousness. Like, it's just not, that's not how it works. And I need you to see that and accept that. And I know that you feel like you get hit over the head constantly with that culture, and it might not be reflective of your values, but it's not going anywhere. And so you can continue to bang your head against the wall but i don't know if that serves you i don't know if that's a you know a loving thing for me to recommend you do because this is where we're at and i will say that we are focusing this conversation primarily around gay rights but i think a lot of w- the resentment and the fear you hear in these conversations even if people are talking about gay rights and being gay is about the increasing amount of societal conversation and societal shifts around transgender people and transgender rights. I think that's a big part of it is that gender just sets people on fire. It's just so difficult. And I get it. I mean, I think that I encountered... This is why I'm so passionate about fiction. I encountered a book that forever changed my opinions. And it's not even that it changed my opinions. I don't know if that part, I was, I was at this point in my life, I was even opposed to transgender rights or the expansion of our ideas around gender. It's, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand the complexity and what was already available to us. But it's the book Middlesex. Have you ever read it, Beth? No. Oh, my God. It's so good. And it's just, it just opened my eyes and it made me realize that like, this is not a new thing. We're not inventing this spectrum of the gendered experiences existed throughout human history. It just really, really changed me. And, but that is, I think that's just a, that's a scary thing and a big lift. If you're asking someone, especially someone with limited life experience to, think about gender in an entirely different way. And I think that is a conversation we're having right now as a culture that's, that's hard, that's not going anywhere. And I hope one in which we can have with a great deal of care and gentleness with each other because it is so hard and so sensitive we're dealing with a group of people that are so vulnerable and we're also dealing with something that touches everyone the idea of what it is to be a certain gender what those gender roles look like what those mean like it's just it's a big lift <laughs> for a country as large and diverse and generationally split as we are it's just it's a big one. And so you know, I think we're ju- we're just creeping into that slowly and it's gonna be, I don't know how the way I can say. how many different ways I can say it. it's gonna be a hard one, y'all. It's gonna be a hard one.
0: Because it's not like we figured out, even if we were just all living in super traditional gender roles, it's not like we've even figured out that dynamic. So we're trying to have a million conversations at one time and it's all related. This conversation that the Southern Baptist Convention is having about the role of women in the church is absolutely related to LGBTQ rights. It's part of why it's such a struggle. And the thing is, like, you can have a conversation.
1: It's one thing to have a conversation, let's say, in the 60s about a group of a different race to which you do not belong and who you most likely do not live closely with. Okay, it's another thing to have a conversation about gay rights, especially in the beginning before a lot of people were out of the closet. And we can see how it shifts when, it's, when you're talking about somebody maybe in your extended family or maybe it touches you a little closer. Now we're talking about gender. We're talking about being a man, being a woman. That touches everybody, everybody, okay? So that's everything that's about marriages. That's about your relationship with your parents. That's, about, I mean, it's just, it's so big. You're asking this one community to carry all that and this one conversation about transgender rights and, you know, which bathroom we're all going to, to carry the weight of this entire conversation of this entire framework
0: that touches every little aspect of our lives. And it's just, it's a powder keg, man. Yeah, Because it puts everything on the table for everybody. And I love your point about asking this one issue to carry it because I'm, I'm so tired of talking about bathrooms and, I'm just at a place where I'm really interested in how much we can get past our own biology and recognize that human beings have different gifts across lines other than our biologies, that human beings have different desires across other lines. And I think that our relationship to these physical bodies of ours is at the crux of most of our major cultural battles right now it's certainly at the root of the abortion conversation it's certainly at the root of this conversation i struggle to think of a conversation that sort of doesn't get back to safety and security in the maslow's hierarchy of needs sense about our human bodies that we inhabit and so that opens up a lot of possibility for us to evolve right? And to discover new things about ourselves and why we're here in the universe. But we can't do that if we all stay in defense and offense. And that's why, again, I think the most important thing for me to say in this conversation is those of us who are not part of this community and want to be good and kind and generous to it, I think we really need to think about how we interact with folks who feel differently than we do and how we can use our opportunities To impact those feelings. For our conversation outside of politics, we thought we should share with you all that we attended the memorial service for Rachel Held Evans in Chattanooga over the weekend. I felt weird about letting people know we were there, Sarah, which I think gets to One of the most beautiful and freeing and spiritual aspects of this service, which was truly holy, in the way that Nadia Boltz Weber so beautifully normalized grieving and said, we are meant to grieve and we are supposed to grieve. And I felt like there was sort of permission for this to not be some kind of weird thing, but that this is, in fact, what we are exactly supposed to be doing.
1: I thought one of the most powerful parts of the experience was, you know, Sarah Bessie tweeted that the family wanted a funeral, not necessarily a celebration of life. Because the reality is, Rachel led an incredibly amazing life. The impact and her legacy and the power of her work is massive and because of that her death is all the more tragic the most heartbreaking parts of the service when her sister spoke and at other points was just this idea of like she shouldn't be gone she just shouldn't be gone and I think it was so powerful that her family said no we're going to mourn that she shouldn't be gone and that we're so sad that she died and part of that again is the is the the power of what she was able to do in knowing that she won't be able to do that anymore and I think what I was left with and it's just such a weird Paradox to stand in Is that The power of Rachel and her words Both makes this so tragic And also I believe a spirit that strong Isn't going anywhere It will not be here In a bodily presence But A woman like that A life like that A body of work like that is still very much here through her words, through the people she's touched. It's just, it it leaves me speechless to see the people, to hear people talk about her, to see all the people talking about her on social media, just and just the conversations you know are happening across this country with just friends who loved her work, who read her work together. It just, I can, I can feel feel it, I can feel it still and will for the rest of my life because that's the impact of just a powerful spirit like hers. Power is just a word I keep coming back to, especially if, as I sat in that service that she was so powerful from her desk where she sat under a post-it note that said "Tell the truth. I just,
0: I'm in awe of it. I really am. I'm so grateful to her family and to Sarah Bessie and Jeff Chu for allowing us to be there for this service and for sharing this service online. So we'll put a link in the show notes. It is well worth your time. If you have any interest at all, it is well worth your time to witness this. And I think even though it's already happened and you'll be viewing it after the fact, you will feel like a participant because there there was such life in this. And it is really one of the first times I have ever been in a church service and no one has tried to put a bow around what's happening. It was so nice to just have, have us say, we are supposed to be sad right now and we are going to be sad for a long time and there is anguish here and then just leave that hanging and and not try to dress it up as something else into the entirety of the discussion that we've been having on today's podcast how much better off would we be if there were more spaces for us to just leave it hanging and not try to dress it up and not try to find a rule or an answer somewhere to the most complex things that we feel and so it it was truly a changing experience to be there. I agree with you, Sarah. I think that Rachel Held Evans is not going anywhere, and I'm so glad. Because she taught us how to do that. She was so willing to do that, to just sit
1: in the complexity, to sit in the, I don't know, to sit in the, there's not an easy answer here. I mean, that, it's so hard to convey to people. You know, we talk about hard conversations. And we go through all these interviews and we say, how do you do hard things? How do you have hard conversations? And how do you sit with people when you can't convince them? And all these things. And I, it's just so hard to convey the power of that and that you can do it and that it is available to us. And she was so brilliant at that. She was so incredibly brilliant at that. And it showed and the service. It showed sitting with all these people who loved her and who talked about her, and you could just feel it. It 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 was amazing. It was sacred. It was holy, for sure.
0: Thank you all for being here and enduring these conversations with us. In one of her last emails to us, Rachel said, how you two wonderful ladies managed to stay sane right now is completely beyond me and undoubtedly the work of the Holy Spirit. And we feel that way, and we know that a variety of traditions come here, and people who are atheist and agnostic and from all faith communities, which I think is exactly the population of people that Rachel Held Evans was talking to. And we're just honored that we knew her at all and had the privilege of experiencing her work and in some small way, we hope we contribute to its continuance, and we thank you all for doing that with us. We'll be back with you here on Friday to begin discussing the five things you need to know about Brexit. Until then, keep it nuanced, you
2: Hey, fellow Pantsuit Politics listeners, this is Michael Green, and I first discovered Sarah and Beth all the way back during our last set of presidential primaries in 2016. Needless to say, it was a simpler time. One thing that has remained the same, though, has been Sarah and Beth's commitment to nuance, thoughtfulness, and important discussions. I've loved watching the podcast grow, and I've loved watching the community grow. And part of that has been being a Patreon supporter. When the ladies first announced that Patreon was going to be part of their community, I knew that I had to be a supporter in this way because the conversation that they're starting is so valuable to me. And I think that it really gets to the root of a lot of our problems by starting from a place of nuance and from an admission that this is complicated. I really, really appreciate all the hard work that goes into this podcast. And I hope you'll join me as a Patreon supporter because I know you do too. Thank you and keep it nuanced y'all.
0: life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about
1: our lives,
0: live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up
1: for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.